Our beloved Ventura campus will be joining us for the sermon this morning. Let's let them know that we love them so much. We love you, Ventura. And we'll go ahead and open up to the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 13. Now listen, we're going to cover three chapters this morning. I know. It seems a daunting and near impossible task. I don't know whether it seems more daunting for me or for you. Uh, But we can do it. And the reason is these chapters, 13, 14, and 15, are really a snapshot that belong together. And when taken together, they give the appropriate picture of what's going on. And really, once we've explained the material in chapter 13, uh, we'll just read more or less chapters 14 and 15. They just make sense in light of the events in chapter 13, and they just flow together. So remember this, that the word of God is wonderful. And that it is true and it stands forever. And there is nothing worth giving your attention to more than the word of God. So we can do this. I do not intend to take any more time than I normally do. I don't know if that comforts you or disheartens you, but it'll be about the same length, Lord willing. But let's, it'll be more material. So let's give attention to the wonderful word of God. It's worthy of our attention. It is glorious. The title of this sermon is The Counterfeit Kingdom. And that'll be obvious as we move through it, the counterfeit kingdom. We're not going to read the text beforehand as we normally do. Uh, We'll just take it verse by verse. We'll just pray and then get into it. Lord, truly, your word is wonderful, as we've been saying. And it is wonderful because it reveals to us our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, who loves us and gave himself for us, that we might have new life, abundant life, eternal life. Thank you, God, for your wonderful word that reveals our wonderful Savior, who is, who was, and who is to come, whose kingdom has been brought to us by the coming of Christ and will be brought in fullness to the world in the days to come. And these are things to rejoice about, even though there are now difficult days and there are coming some difficult days. Jesus, you're great and glorious and you have overcome sin, death, and the devil. And that victory will be made evident for the world to see one day. So cause our hearts to have hope and to rejoice even in the midst of the text that we'll look at today. And please give us understanding. Help us, Holy Spirit, to comprehend. Help me, Holy Spirit, to teach and to faithfully serve this church that I love so much. We ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you may remember if you were here last week that chapter 12 was this picture given to John of a woman who was about to give birth to a child. And she was in labor pains. And there before the woman was this dragon. And the dragon's intention was to devour the child when the child was born. And the child, of course, was Jesus coming in the incarnation. And the woman was representative of Israel through whom the Messiah came. And the big red dragon, of course, was Satan, who intends to destroy the work of Christ and thwart, stop the kingdom of Christ and undermine the rule and the reign of Christ. And so was looking to devour the child. And we talked about ways in which he endeavored to do that. But Christ was victorious through the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. And the devil, being frustrated, declared war on the woman, the mother, Israel, and on her other offspring, the church. Not being able to get directly to Jesus Christ, the dragon came after that which he loves most. His people, represented here in Israel and Israel in the church. And what was happening in that chapter, chapter 12, was that the veil of time was being pulled back, the veil of time and the physical realm to reveal to us the cause of much of the wickedness that we see in the world today, especially as it pertains to opposition perpetrated against God's people. 
the veil pulled back to show us that there's something more sinister than things like politics and greed and selfishness and ideologies or something deeper, something more substantive and wicked that stands behind it. The schemes of the enemy to thwart, to destroy, to come against the rule and reign, the people and the work of Christ. And that helped us, looking at that text, to make sense of much of the current news, really, that we see in the world. Helped us to make some of the sense of the things that we've seen in the past, and it helped us to understand and to face, with the help of Jesus Christ, the prophecies about the future, that unveiling that we saw in chapter 12. Now, in our text today, there is a further unveiling. It has to do primarily with the future, though there are points of reference that these things referred to during John's time in the first century. Remember, again, that the dragon was unable to defeat the child, Christ, and so declared war on his people. And what we'll see in the text today is the means by which the dragon wages war against God's people. In an overarching sense in history and throughout time, but in a particular sense in the future and the tribulation period the means by which the dragon wages war. Today we see the dragon's team, also known as the losing team. Can I get an amen? Amen. Today in the text is unveiled to us two beasts that the dragon brings forth. The first beast is representative of the Antichrist. The second beast is representative of the false prophet whom we will meet for the first time today. And the three of them together form a sort of counterfeit trinity, an unholy trinity of sorts. The dragon, the first beast and the second beast, Satan, the antichrist and the false prophet, a pseudo counterfeit, unholy sort of trinity. And in Satan's efforts to thwart the coming kingdom and reign of Christ, we'll see all sorts of counterfeits presented by him to try to lead the world in deception through this text today. We'll see a counterfeit resurrection, the counterfeit trinity. We'll see a counterfeit people. We'll see counterfeit worship and a counterfeit kingdom, all in an effort to rob Christ and to thwart him of his rule and its implications. So we'll pick it up in the last verse of chapter 12, which reminds us of the context. Remember, in the original, there were no chapter breaks. This is all one continuous vision here. Verse 17 of chapter 12, And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, Satan's war against the church. And he stood on the sand of the seashore, Okay, so this is Satan in this vision, standing on the sands of the seashore, which in Bible language is representative of the whole world, of the nations. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his head were heads, excuse me, were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. So here we have the dragon, Satan, calling forth this first of two great beasts to carry out his campaign against the woman's offspring against Israel and the church, and ultimately Christ. And this first beast that I told you before is the Antichrist, very closely connected with Satan here. You can see the the description with the multiple heads and the multiple horns and the multiple crowns is very similar to the description that we got of Satan in chapter 12, verse 3. And you'll notice that on his head, it said, on his heads were blasphemous names. This will be names coming against the identity of Christ and of God. Blasphemous names, names that are claims to ultimate authority, claims to deity. Now, John's point of reference in the first century in the original context would have been the Caesars of Rome. Remember that the temptation that was put to the church that time, the, the cultural norm, the pressure of the day was to say, Caesar is Lord. A blasphemous claim by the Caesars of Rome. And there's been many world leaders who have made blasphemous claims. There will come this one who makes multitudinous blasphemous claims. 
And the stance of the church was, we will not say Caesar is Lord, for Jesus is Lord. And the same sort of attempt to usurp the authority and the identity of Jesus Christ is present in this entity, the beast, who is a symbol of, emblematic of a picture of not only a person, the Antichrist is a person, the book of Daniel makes that clear, Paul makes that clear in 2 Thessalonians, but also representative of his kingdom as a whole. Again, John's point of reference in the first century would have been the Roman Empire. He gets it. He's living in an empire that dominated the world and was wicked and made blasphemous claims. There's a point of reference here to the first century, but there's an ultimate fulfilling in the future. During the last days, the beast will appear more malicious and powerful than ever. It says there in the second verse that he was like a leopard, feet like a bear, a mouth like a lion. Now the book of Daniel runs as sort of a parallel to the book of Revelation. And we've dipped into it a few times, though not many times, mostly for the the sake of being succinct. We're covering a lot of ground and we just can't look at everything. But it'd be helpful for you to read the book of Daniel along with the book of Revelation, especially as it pertains to the Antichrist. Chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 11, and other chapters are a real parallel to this material about the Antichrist and what it has to say. And the Antichrist here appears again in this imagery like a leopard, the symbolism like a bear and like a lion. And you may remember, if you read Daniel, that Daniel used those three beasts and another as pictures of, symbols of, during the time he was writing, future world kingdoms that would be hostile against God's people. The Babylonian kingdom, followed by the Medo-Persian kingdom, followed by the Grecian kingdom, followed by the Roman kingdom. Daniel used those same animals plus another to represent those kingdoms. They were hostile to God's people. So there's that Daniel Ellick, that from the book of Daniel background picture of world systems, rulers, and governments that are hostile to God's people, all wrapped up in this imagery of the final ultimate world ruler who will be the means through which Satan declares war on God's people epitomizing all worldly opposition to the kingdom of God, denoting in the imagery of the animals prowess, power, and authority, this terrible beast who represents both a false Messiah sort of figure and a false substitute kingdom for the kingdom of God, this future world ruler. Notice from whence, from whence, what an old school word, from whence his power and authority come. They come from Satan. Verse 2 says that the dragon gives him his power, the dragon gives him his throne, and the dragon gives him his authority. It will be a literal future world ruler who will be empowered, enabled, and a puppet of pure evil. That's not so hard for us to imagine. In his temptation of Jesus, his attempts to tempt Jesus, Satan talked about his ownership over world kingdoms. Look from Luke chapter 4. And he, Satan, led him, Jesus, up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to Jesus, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it's been handed over to me, and I can give it to whomever I wish. Remember, Satan is called the God of this world, lowercase g. He has tremendous authority in this world given to him by the forfeiture of humanity. We were given dominion under God. We were called to be stewards of the world. We in many ways forfeited this dominion to the enemy. Christ is taking it back through the cross and the resurrection and his coming and the establishment of his kingdom. But Satan has this authority and he will in some way give this authoritative rule over multiple kingdoms of the world to this antichrist figure in the last days. And what it is, this ruling of kingdoms, is an attempt to thwart to stop, to destroy the true kingdom brought by Jesus Christ. It is uniting of kingdoms against the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. It is an unholy 
coalition of nations. Willing or unwilling, cognitive or not. Ten horns representing various nations, seven heads and various crowns. Revelation chapter 17 reveals more of this to us. This calls for a mind with understanding, it says. The seven heads of the beast represent the seven hills where the woman rules. They also represent seven kings. Five kings have already fallen. The sixth now reigns and the seventh is yet to come, but his reign will be brief. We'll talk about those details when we get to chapter 17. The scarlet beast that was but is no longer is the eighth king. He is like the other seventh and he too is headed for destruction. The point is multiple kings and nations. The ten horns of the beast are ten kings who have not yet risen to power. They will be appointed to their kingdoms for one brief moment to reign with the beast. Now look. They will all agree to give their power and authority to him. You see that? A one world type of ruler. This doesn't surprise us. We we see evidence of this all over. but, But look at the point. Together, they will go to war against the lamb. Who's the lamb? Jesus. See, this is an unveiling of current world realities, past world realities. Daniel spoke about it with the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Grecian and the Roman empires and future realities. Things are not always what they seem. These coalitions in the future will have this purpose to thwart the righteous rule of Jesus. That doesn't surprise us. The current world wants to thwart the righteous rule of Jesus. Everywhere we look, governments and worlds are looking to minimize the influence of Christ and his truth, to take it out of our documents, out of our schools, out of our courts, out of the public realm. This is not surprising stuff. But the lamb will defeat them. Because he is the Lord of all lords and he is the king of all kings. And his called and chosen and faithful ones will be with him. Yeah, amen, good news. Back to our text. In his efforts to disrupt the plans of God and destroy his people, Satan organizes his future world government system that unites against the work of Jesus. Together they will go to war against the Lamb but Jesus wins. Now, the way that we see this working in the world currently and the way this will work in the world in the future to a large degree is through deception, through deception, through calling what is evil good and calling what is good evil. By coming against truth, by wanting to paint it multitudinous shades of gray, by doing away with standard, false truth, false leaders. Jesus said the last days would be characterized by deception, Mark chapter 13. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. Watch out. I have warned you about this ahead of time. Jesus says, watch out. In the last days, in our days, there will be much deception. Black and white, light and dark will not always be so obvious. Everyone will want to push toward the multitude of gray in the middle. Watch out for it. Even if there's great displays of power, signs and wonders Jesus is saying, cling desperately to the truth. Know the word of God for the last days will be full of deception. And this is one of the ways that the beast will rise to prominence is with signs and wonders that deceive. Pseudo signs and wonders, lying signs and wonders, counterfeit to counter Jesus. Look at verse three, chapter 13. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Wow, a counterfeit resurrection, a counterfeit resurrection. Do you see the, do you see that Satan's not that creative? A counterfeit trinity, 
a counterfeit kingdom, a counterfeit resurrection. I know if this world leader rises from the dead, then many will follow. Why would he think that? Because it has truly happened in history. So at some point, the Antichrist will receive this fatal blow and will seem to be resurrected from the dead. And the whole earth is amazed and they decide to follow after the beast. The truth of it is Romans 1.4 where it says, Jesus was declared the son of God by power through his resurrection from the dead. Jesus was declared the son of God by power through his resurrection from the dead. Satan is a counterfeit. This is deception. This is pseudo. This is a direct attack on the person and the identity of Jesus Christ. Look at the results, verse 4. And they worshiped the dragon, the devil, because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, look what they're saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? They worship the dragon, Satan, because he gives his authority to the beast. And they worship the beast because nobody can match his power in the world. And the world is saying, who is like him? Again, this is an attack toward God. That was one of the mantras about God in the Old Testament. Who is like our God, O Israel? In fact, the name Michael means who is like God. Anyone here named Michael? Nobody? Okay, Michael, there you are. Who is, there we go. Who is like God? That's what Israel used to say about God. And now the world and the future is saying, well, who is like the beast? It's very clear what is going on here. And again, John had a point of reference for this from the first century Roman Empire who seemed indefeatable and indisputable in their power and authority. But the world is yet to see the fullness of it. Verse five, and there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. Okay, he's coming against the identity of Jesus Christ. And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Again, if you take this sort of perspective and interpretation, the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, it may be a general time frame of warfare against God's people. Verse six, and he opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is those who dwell in heaven. Heaven, everything about God, this world ruler comes against. Verse seven, and it was given to him to make war with the saints, God's people, and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him, leading the whole world. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. Pause right there. Everyone in the world will worship him except those who know Jesus. Those whose names are written in the book of life of the lamb. It's going to be a real line drawn in the sand, isn't there? You've heard the phrase, well, everyone else is doing it. This is going to be the ultimate expression of everyone else is doing it. There will be a sweeping current of allegiance to this system, this kingdom. There will be a sweeping movement away from God. The name of God and Christ being defamed, attacked on every front. counterfeit power and signs. There will be a line drawn in the sand. Everyone will go along with the spirit of the age except those who belong to Christ. This is not merely the future. This is today. We are already in a current of antichrist sort of culture. Moving away from truth and righteousness, and standard, and exaltation of the person of Jesus Christ. There will not only be a line drawn in the sand, then there is a line in the sand now. There is a stand to be taken now. Depending on your view of the interpretation, maybe we will have been raptured by then, and these are people who got saved during the tribulation period. Maybe not. Either way, our brothers and sisters, the church, will have to stand firm in these days. John had a point of reference for that. During his time, Christians were already being killed. 
There was already an anti-Jesus current. It was already Caesar is Lord. There was already blasphemy. There was already pressure to conform persecution of a powerful, indisputable, indestructible government to back it up. There was a line in the sand then. There will be a line in the sand then. And there is a line in the sand now. Stand firm, brothers and sisters. Stand firm. Verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. That's a sort of enigmatic saying that basically says there's going to be uncomfortable things that happen to God's people during those times. God's people need to stand firm. NLT helps us. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. That's part of the point of the book of Revelation. That has always been the truth. That goes back before the New Testament time. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. Now, the second beast is introduced. Verse 11. And I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon another beast. Now, this beast is called the false prophet. In chapter 16, chapter 19, and chapter 20, the false prophet. And he completes this unholy counterfeit trinity, if you will. The dragon, the antichrist, and the false prophet. And he functions like a prophet. The prophets of God were called by God authorized by God to call people to worship. And what we'll see the false prophet doing is calling people to worship the Antichrist. And it's striking in its resemblance to the Trinity, the dragon who has the beast whom he gives all authority to. And then the false prophet who's calling people to worship the beast. It's a counterfeit, it's a diminutive, it's a ripoff, it's a falsehood. God the Father, who gave all authority to his Son, and then who sent the Holy Spirit, who calls people to worship and exalt Jesus. The same sort of structure, but counterfeit, untrue. It says there that he had two horns like a lamb and a mouth like a dragon. The dragon is Satan. So it's satanic lies, but they are given forth tactfully. Two horns like a lamb. There's sort of a contradiction there. Horns in scripture always speak of power and authority, but he's, he, he's like a lamb. He'll come with gentle persuasion. He's not like the iron-fisted beast. He's the prophet of the beast whose words help the beast lead in this satanic direction who comes with gentle, evil persuasion, much like the serpent in the garden. He'll be like that. Verse 12, and he exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence. Okay, so that's delegated authority. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal womb was healed. There's there's his job, right? Like a prophet, he's calling people to worship. And he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. Signs and wonders in the last days. Not all power is a display of God's power. Remember Pharaoh's magicians. Jesus said that this would be happening in the last days, lying signs and wonders. Paul talks about it explicitly in 2 Thessalonians 2. Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed, that's the Antichrist, but the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. That's chapter 19. We'll get there. This man will come to do the work of Satan. That's this chapter. With counterfeit power and signs and miracles, he will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. Tell me that truth isn't important. Tell me that truth isn't important right now. 
Scripture is explicit that once you reject the truth, you become susceptible to the lie and to every form of lies. And once a heart and a mind rejected the truth of Jesus Christ, whom truly rose from the dead and who truly has a kingdom, then he or she becomes susceptible to the false resurrection and the false kingdom. Truth is important now, and we are purveyors of the truth. We are those who have been entrusted with the truth, earthen vessels given the truth to speak about Jesus in our world. Give your life to studying, living, and proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ. Nothing is more merciful and compassionate and there is no better investment than that. Verse 14, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And there was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Wow, it's just getting gnarly. That's like the ultimate idolatry. There's this image made to the beast and somehow it's animated. It takes on life. And push comes to shove. Those who will not worship the beast, it costs them their lives. John had a point of reference for that. That's what was happening in Rome. Christians that wouldn't say Caesar is Lord, eventually it would cost them their lives. That's what's happening in our world right now with radical Islam. Right now. And other ideologies. This is not so fantastic. This is not so far removed. Worship this entity or die. That was an ancient reality. That's a present reality. And that would be a worldwide, unified, future reality, the scriptures seem to say. Now it gets really creepy. Verse 16. And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one should be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who understands calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. You know, popular culture has had a field day with those few verses, haven't they? And, you know, they use 666 for all sorts of things, all sorts of ways. You see it on album covers and T-shirts and all these other things. And there have been multitudinous books written on this mark of the beast. What will it be? Have I somehow unknowingly receive the mark of the beast? No, you haven't. It will become very clear in the next chapters we're about to read that everyone will know what they're doing when they do it. It's not going to get slipped on anybody. It's not going to get slipped in anybody. It's not going to be, oh no, I accidentally took the mark. It's not your credit card. (laughs) I don't know what it is. There's books written about it, tons of speculation. You can read them if you like. I have. I don't know what it is, but the point is this. It will be a kingdom of control and coercion. You want to eat? Pledge allegiance. Ancient cultures used to mark their slaves this way. This is an old thing. This is not going to be unique to the future. Slaves were marked this way. Are we not told at the end of the book of the Revelation that we have the seal of God upon our foreheads? It's a picture of ownership. Were there not the 144,000 who were sealed with the seal of God? And God sealed them that they might be protected from his wrath, God's wrath, as he judged wickedness. 
And now the Antichrist is sealing people that they might be protected from his wrath as he comes against righteousness. Pledge allegiance. You want to eat? Take the seal. You going to buy anything? You going to trade? Pledge allegiance to this ruler. And his number is 666. So everyone tries to figure out what that means. And then everyone says, well, who, who, who is it? And it's easy to look back in history because both Hebrew or all Hebrew, Greek, and Latin all have numerical quantities assigned to their letters. So people have looked at names and speculated, well, maybe it was this president. Maybe it was this pope. Maybe it was this guy. Maybe it was her. I think it's future. So I don't think we can look back in history and identify anybody. It's enigmatic to be sure. John meant to give a clue to future readers. I would say that we generally have no clue, but I will tell you this. The point of the book is not to get us looking for Antichrist. The point of the book is to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. Who enters the scene in the next verse? Chapter 14, verse 1. Now it all changes. And I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. Ha ha ha! Counter move! Here comes the beast and the false prophet with their little names on their heads. But here comes Jesus standing in victory on Mount Zion with his and the father's names on the heads of his people. And I heard a loud voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of a loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. You'll remember that this is a remnant of Israel that God is protecting during this time, is my interpretation. We talked about them a few chapters ago. Now look. While the whole world is being led into unrighteousness, look at the contradistinction of them. Verse 4. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women. They have kept themselves chaste. These are ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. When the whole world is following the beast, there is a remnant who follows the Lamb. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Look, the followers of the beast have been deceived and coerced. The followers of the Lamb have been purchased and redeemed. Verse 5, And no lie was found in their mouth, and they were blameless. In an age of deception, they were purveyors of truth. Verse 6, And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach. Look at the mercy of God. During this time full of deception, he sends an angel to fly around in the sky preaching the gospel. No more Brit, no more you. Angel preaching the gospel. And those who live on the earth in every tongue and tribe and nation and people will hear it. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. Forget about the beast. Forget about the false prophet. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. Don't worship this thing, this image. Don't worship the created. Worship him who created all things the gospel being preached from heaven at this moment in history. And another angel, second one followed, saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. We'll get to that in future chapters. It's that wicked world system to which we've been referring. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And another angel, third one, followed the same with a loud voice. Okay, here's how you know you don't have the mark of the beast. 
If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. That's sobering, but that's gracious. There will be a clear announcement as to who ought to be worshipped, what's what and who's who. And there will be a clarion call not to receive the mark of the beast. The line in the sand will be drawn. The moment of decision is before them. What will we do? There's tremendous cultural, political, ideological, popular pressure to succumb, to conform. But there's an angel flying around mid-heaven saying, worship God and fear him. He is the creator. He is the merciful one and he is the judge. Do not take the mark of the beast. There will be consequences It will be an age of deception, but it will also be a profound moment of clarity. And those who choose to pledge allegiance to the beast will do so knowingly. Jesus said, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. John chapter three. That was true then, that is true now and that'll be shown to be true in the future. Here is, then it says in verse 12, the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Again, this idea, NLT helps us. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently, obeying his commands and maintaining their faith in Jesus. That will be the call then. That is the call now. The protocol is the same. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution, excuse me, patiently, obeying his commands and maintaining their faith in Jesus. Listen, brothers and sisters, we may not be around to see this grand unfolding, this huge drawing of the line in the sand, but we are confronted with opportunities to compromise every day. Every day to fiddle with darkness to conform to the image of the world. God's holy people must endure and obey his commands and maintain their faith in Jesus. And there's consequences for doing so. Some of you have suffered loss of friendship because of your stand on Jesus and righteousness and truth. Some of you have been ostracized from family. Think about Muslims getting saved worldwide, that it costs them everything. Jesus is appearing to Muslims in dreams and visions worldwide. There's a radical movement of Jesus endeavoring to save Muslims. And think about the cost it is for them to follow Jesus. And in a little way, there's always costs for us to follow Jesus, and there will be a really big cost in the future. The promise before us is that there is always reward. Verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Speaking of martyrs, they're blessed. Jesus said, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake. Continuing the verse, yes, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their deeds will follow with them. Meaning God will remember. God will remember that they stood firm. God will remember that they stood for truth and righteousness and there will be reward on that day. You're always, if you stand firm for Jesus, you're always gonna get to the end and say it was worth it. You'll never get to the end and say, well, I shouldn't have stood for Jesus. I should have compromised. I should have been quiet. I should have given in. I should have sinned more. I shouldn't have obeyed so much. We'll never say that. We'll get to the end and whatever we did for Jesus will have been worth it. There's nothing else in life that you can say that about. So 
Sorry, I'm excited. Verse 14. And I looked and behold a white cloud and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man. Who's that? Jesus. Jesus, Having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap because the hour to reap has come because the harvest of of the earth is ripe. This is not a good harvest. This is not the harvest that Jesus spoke about in the Gospels of those who would be believers. This is a judgment harvest. And he who sat on the cloud, Jesus, swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. This is just a sweeping picture of sweeping judgment. Jesus came, and he gave his life on the cross for sinners. One day, Jesus will judge sin in a sweeping sort of way, pictured here. And another angel, verse 17, came out of the temple which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. And another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out of the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had a sharp sickle, saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because their grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. And blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Obvious and horrific pictorial symbolism of the coming wrath of God. The evil really will get swept up one day. And it really will be a fully righteous judgment. All that that entails, the wine press of the wrath of God, that someday evil will be trampled under the feet of Jesus in a horrific, beautiful, wonderful, healing way. For Christ came... Listen to me. Christ came to heal the world. But there can be no healing of the world without judgment of evil. For how can we heal from the past as humanity unless sin and wickedness and atrocities are judged? How can we heal from the present horrors unless they're ultimately dealt with. Jesus came to heal, but there is no healing without judgment. We are healed, Christians, through Christ being judged on the cross in our place. He took that judgment that we might be healed because sin was dealt with. Those who refuse the cross will have their sin dealt with in this way. This is why we preach the gospel. And it ends on a high note, verse 1, chapter 15. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image, and from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. What a pretty picture. Those who came off victorious, not all will fall to the deception. Those who came off victorious because of the blood of Jesus and their testimony about him, their faith in Jesus. Harps, I don't know what that picture is. I don't know, man, but it sounds cool. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Okay, this song about Jesus saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of nations. You see that? The counterfeit king has been dispelled. Jesus is a real King of nations. The coalition of nations against the Lamb has been done away with. Jesus is the real king of the nations. 
Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou alone art holy. Verse 4, or the continuation of verse 4. For all the nations will come and worship before thee. You see that reversal? You see what was happening in chapter 13 with the beast? All the nations were coming and worshiping the beast. Now, all the nations will come and worship. Jesus is the ultimate plan. For thy righteousness has been revealed. Now, it seems somewhat concealed. Then, it will be ultimately revealed. And after these things, I looked in the temple of the tabernacle, the testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their breasts with golden girdles. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. We'll get to those next chapter. Last verse. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was even able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and his power. In the end, Jesus wins. In the end, his glory is revealed. The book in totality is not about Antichrist. The book and fullness is about Jesus Christ. Don't worry so much about the Antichrist. Put the fullness of your attention on the one who loves you, Jesus Christ, and give your life for his purposes. This you will never regret. Thank you, Lord, for these wonderful truths which bring joy to our souls. Even in the midst of dark things, tremendous joy to our souls. Jesus, the victorious one, who causes us also to come off victorious, ultimately and in the trials of our lives. Thank you. And thank you, Jesus, that we have you. That by putting our faith in your finished work upon the cross, we are saved from the power and the penalty of sin. We are brought into loving relationship with the one true God. Cause us to live our lives in a way that is consonant with that and honors that. Help us as Christians to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.